This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Today on the pod, Park Board Chaos. Barely a year into power. How did the wheels fall off the ABC bus so quickly? And we continue our series, The Next Million, and look at how we safeguard the region's water supply as another million residents move to Metro Vancouver by 2050. Plus, Ottawa announces a crackdown on methane leaks from the oil and gas sector. Critics say it's less stringent than what was expected. Natural Resources Minister Jonathan Wilkinson joins us. Plus, here with you, we speak to author Kathy Wagner, about her struggles to save her son from addiction. That's all next on the Jazz Johal Show podcast. Let's talk climate change and emissions. Today we learned the oil and gas industry will have to cut emissions by, by more than one-third uh, or by offset credits under the federal government's new oil and gas cap policy, which was announced today. Now, the cap was promised by the Liberals in the 2021 election, uh, so they're about a, more than a year behind schedule in regards to introducing the legislation. In the end, the plan will require a smaller cut to emissions than initially estimated uh, by the government. Uh, oil and gas production right now counts for more than a quarter of Canada's emissions and capping their emissions is critical to meeting Canada's climate targets. Joining me now to discuss the issue is Energy and Natural Resources Minister Jonathan Wilkinson. Minister, thank you for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me. Can you walk our audience through uh, the importance of this? Uh, Methane and and cutting back on methane is very important. Um, How... uh, or how confident do you feel you can achieve these emission cuts? I'm very confident. Um, we, uh, we did a lot of work uh, to assess what was actually feasible to accomplish between now and 2030, of course, on a pathway to net zero by 2050. Um, and, uh, and the biggest chunks of reductions that we have identified would be in the methane area, as you said, uh, where the technology exists um, and it's actually relatively inexpensive to implement. The other area was in the oil sands, where we're looking to address some of the CO2 emissions through a range of technologies, including carbon capture and sequestration. Um, So we think it's very doable, um, but it's an enormously important step forward uh, for Canada. We need to see reductions in every sector of the economy. Uh, My view is that will strengthen the Canadian economy. It will make us a provider of ultra-low carbon products, um, and that certainly includes the oil and gas space. So it, it was a big step forward. We're the first country in the world to do this, um, and uh, and I think uh, it's a good day for climate, and it's a good day for the Canadian economy. Um, in the present conversation around affordability, there has been tremendous um, pushback uh, on the carbon tax, um, and not that methane is part of that, but does your government realize that there is a limit, though, in regards to uh, the public and to a certain degree, industry as well. And I'm talking in the context of British Columbia and the carbon tax going up and the impact on the industry, on industries as well by 2030. How much of that plays a role in your thinking as you're moving forward in some of these uh, uh, plans being brought in and cutting back on emissions? Well, it, it does factor into thinking. Um, it has. I mean, the, the carbon tax uh, is, is one full 
broader set of tools that we use in the climate plan. We've been of the view that the carbon tax itself, uh, on its own, will will drive all of the emissions reductions that are required. It is an incentive. It creates a price signal for people to make different choices. But we have to put in place incentives and investments, and in many cases, regulations. And today's announcement was putting in place a regulation that will require reductions in the oil and gas space. Um, you know, you could have done this in a different way with a much, much higher price on carbon. Our view was that it's more effective and more certain to put in place a cap um, and to regulate that down. It has to be done in a manner that's achievable, of course. Um, but it's not dissimilar, actually, to what the British Columbia government has uh, has announced they intend to do. They, they have said they're going to put a cap on oil and gas emissions. Um, we will obviously need to talk to them about whether they will simply use the federal cap or, their, or they wish to proceed with their own cap. Um, but they have announced that they need to do that as well. And again, that's partly for climate-related reasons, which obviously is very important, but it's also to try to ensure that the products that they are selling to the world are the lowest carbon products that exist. Do you f- uh, feel pressure as as an elected official uh, on the issue of climate change? What I mean by that is there's a part of our country that obviously means it says that you've got to get on with it, we've got to do our part. There's a good part of this country, com- uh, country that says, wait a minute here, when it comes to affordability, I don't think carbon tax is changing my behavior, or whether it's on the methane side. D- does government, is government um, perhaps taking its foot off the pedal a little bit, acknowledging that some of this has to be done at perhaps a slower pace than even some would like within government, simply because of the impact it's having on industry and its ability to uh, reach those targets, or even the public, which felt feel um, uh, overwhelmed by the issues of affordability when it comes to carbon tax? Well, we certainly have to be thoughtful about how we're implementing um, climate measures in a way that actually addresses affordability concerns. There is no question about that. Um, and so providing, for example, incentives for electric vehicles and for um, you know, people to do retrofits of, of their buildings, um, those are important um, in, in to enable people to actually take climate action on their own. So we have to be thoughtful about it. But I would, I would say thoughtful doesn't mean slowing down in terms of ambition. Um, you know, the science of climate change is the science of climate change. That doesn't, you know, where you're not able to sort of monkey with, with what is happening in the environment. And we are seeing enormous costs associated with climate, including the fires that actually happened in British Columbia this, this summer and the floods we saw a couple of years ago. Um, you know, at the end of the day, we need to make progress. We have to do it thoughtfully, but we have to make progress. And that means, you know, people can say, oh, well, we'll be net zero by 2050, but we don't actually have to make any progress in the short term. I mean, that's just irresponsible. At, at the end of the day, you have to have a plan that shows how you're going to make reductions in the short term that will enable larger reductions in the medium term and achieve net zero by 2050. One of the things that I appreciate very much about the government of British Columbia is that they actually take that approach. They have a logical, thoughtful approach to doing it. Whereas you contrast that with, you know, for example, Saskatchewan, which has no commitment to any climate target. And that's a very different uh, conversation. Mm -hmm. Uh, Some critics have said it's less stringent than many had expected that government was taking its foot off the pedal a little bit. What do you say to that? Well, I say to that uh, that that's not actually the case. Um, you know, they, they would be comparing it to the numbers that were in the emissions reduction plan, which were not targets. They were kind of high-level sectoral objectives. Um, but what we did subsequent to that is we actually looked at what was achievable. And, and, you know, for many of these projects in big industrial applications, it takes time to actually design an object, to actually acquire the, the components. 
components to build the project to then make it operational. Not everything is going to be able to be done by 2030. And the worst thing we could do is go well beyond what is technically achievable um, and, and essentially ask the sector to do something that's impossible. And what that would, would essentially entail is Canada shutting in production in a manner that's not related to declines that will inevitably happen with respect to, uh, to global demand for, for oil and gas. And that would just shift production to another country, to the United States or Mexico or Venezuela, with no climate benefit. So that makes no sense at all. So I, I think what we have done is a very thoughtful, prudent approach to making substantial reductions in absolute emissions in the oil and gas sector, but doing so in a manner that is consistent with strong, a strong economy moving forward. Minister, thank you for your time today. Not at all. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. You're familiar with the annual Vancouver Christmas market at the Jack Pool Plaza, I'm sure, but there's another Christmas market in Vancouver uh, that's decidedly different, maybe even a little weird. Yes, weird. The Weirdos Market kicks off this Friday, and our show contributor, Jerry Mayer Judson, caught up with the head weirdo, Rachel Zottenberg, to talk a little more about it. Do give me the 411 on the Weirdos Market for those of us who don't know. The Weirdos Market, we're in our seventh year. It's an annual holiday market that sort of grew out of the need for places for artists that were a little different and unique and strange to sell their stuff annually. And we have expanded now after the last couple of years to two full weekends with these wild Friday night events where we do 19 plus so people can show even weirder stuff. And basically it's like two full weekends where every wild artist that I've found comes together in this sweet little place at the Russian Hall and everybody presents their work and people come and just buy the wildest, most fun, strange gifts they've ever purchased. I would like to know what kinds of things could we expect to see at the Weirdos Market? Like, who are the vendors? What are they vending? The range of what is going to be there is so wild. I got over 200 applications to the market this year and like me and the judges table sat down for days trying to slog through and find the coolest things. And there's so many amazing artists in the city. I wish I'd had a bigger space to like invite everybody in, but we have so much great stuff this year already. So there's like these, I mean, obviously Barbie's been a bit of a like hit this year. So there's all these artists like taking Barbie and going to a weird and wild side with some of their artistic impressions of that for stickers and images and weird little dolls. The classic stuff that people are used to seeing at Weirdos Market that's really cool is often like people go out and find um, skulls and bones and these artists make these beautiful crystals and skulls and bones and mount. We have this incredible artist that mounts like wasps nests that she puts pearls into so they become beautiful works of art but it's all nature-based stuff that she's found and collected. So many wild things. There's people that do stitches with funny quotes on them. There's bugs in resin. There's a sword swallower that comes every day. He's amazing. There's Punk Rock Pastries, who's an award-winning Food Network champion. She just came off of winning the Halloween Bake Off on Food Network, and she's with us every year, and she makes cookies that are hilarious and about things that I can talk about and not talk about on the radio. So much really beautiful, cool stuff. It's really neat to see how far people are taking their talents this year. You sound 
sound like a proud mom in the best possible way that I can mean that. You're so excited. All the things sound so stinking cool. Where, how do I go? How can I get tickets? What's what's the deal? So the beauty of the market is, it, you know, people come to the front door of the Russian Hall, which is at 600 Campbell Avenue. Any of the days, we're doing December 8th, 9th, and 10th and December 15th, 16th, and 17th. The Friday nights are a plus 19 crowd just because we're doing some cocktails with Odd Society Spirits this year that are going to be super tasty there. And that night is from 5 p.m. to 10 p.m. And then the Saturdays and Sundays are 11 a.m. to 5 p.m. all day long. And those are all ages and a super good time and fun for the whole family. Honestly, it's a great time. If there's someone that you can't find a gift for, I feel like that gift would live at the weirdos market, if anything. There's going to be something. 100%. And you know, we have tarot readers there that will do tarot readings all day. Like I said, like Neil from the Dangerous Girl Show comes and he does shows all day long. We have this wild Santa that was designed by Puppy Teeth, the artist, and he wanders around and takes free photos with everybody all day long. And he, uh, Puppy Teeth is doing this full photo op installation this year for Santa to sit with you. And it's called the Christmas Holiday Haunt. And it's a wild little installation that looks amazing. So there's lots of like fun stuff to do throughout the day too there. We're doing a dog costume contest this year called the Weird Dogs Costume Contest. Oh. We, last year, all these sweet dogs kept showing up in all these hilarious costumes. And we were like all you know, that just brightens every artist's day. They're long days for them to be there. So it's like nice when the dog shows up just looking hilarious. I was like, I got to find a way to make more of this happen. <laughs> this, this is a so thing. Great. So no, it's been so fun. I am like a proud mom. I feel like I'm also like just, I'm just, I feel really blessed. You know, the world is it's a rough time on the planet right now. And it's nice to like feel good and a part of a community that I know has like its heart and morality in the right place. I feel good around these people. I know that they're all doing wonderful things with their time and effort and they're really sweet humans and they deserve all the success they get so for me to get up every year and find a way to make you know to make space for them to show off is like there's nothing more joyful for me it's really nice and i'm hopeful this time of year that we can keep bringing that joy into the world because i feel like it needs it right now like we need to do that kind of thing for each other Thanks to Jerry Mayer Judson and, of course, Rachel Zottenberg there. And, of course, the Weirdos Market is on this weekend and next weekend at the Russian Hall. Five bucks at the door gets you in. For more information, you can go to www.weirdosmarket.ca. That's www.weirdosmarket.ca. We continue our series, The Next Million. The series has been looking at Metro Vancouver through the lens of another million people living here. Our population is presently 2.8 million people and is expected to hit 3.8 million by 2050. Today, we're going to look at the issue of water in our region. With the drought this summer, Metro Vancouver reservoirs, which supply the region's tap water, were at their lowest level for September uh, in a decade. Melting snow is usually uh, usually replenishes the region's reservoirs through the summer, but warm weather in May and June caused the mountain snowpack to melt early and quickly, reducing the amount trickling in over uh, the drier months. For the first time since 2015, watering restrictions in Metro Vancouver were raised beyond stage one to stage two in early August after water use in June and early July climbed about 20% higher than the same period in 2022. It it, uh, led to a complete ban on lawn watering. Now, the Metro Vancouver region alone uses 390 billion litres of water every year and is estimated to reach 600 billion litres per year uh, in nearly a century. Now, this causes a, a growing concern of a water crisis in the upcoming years as the population grows rapidly. But with re- decreasing water supply from three reservoirs, Coquitlam, Seymour, and Capilano, due to high demand 
and climate change. Now, joining me now to discuss the issue is Malcolm Brody, the mayor of Richmond and chair of the Metro Vancouver Water Committee. Malcolm, thank you for joining us today. Thanks, Jess. Nice to be with you. Lots to talk about here with our series, The Next Million, and and, uh, we we talk a lot about uh, commuting and policing and food security, uh, but the most basic of things in life is water. Can you give me a snapshot of, of where we are today uh, and what kind of needs we can expect by the time we hit 2050? Well, the bottom line is we're in good shape today, and uh, we will be in good shape in the future as well uh, for the simple reason that we're not sitting on our hands. Uh, Metro Vancouver, the, the water district, is... Uh, looking at the situation very carefully. They have various long-term studies and strategies. And with climate change and with growth being the two biggest factors, we're going to need more water in the next uh, 20, 30, 40, 50, 100 years than we have now. And the plans are afoot as to how to get that extra water. So how do we do that? Now, right now, we rely on three reservoirs, Coquitlam, Seymour, and Capilano. Uh, right. How do we add more water to the region? Well, the biggest way we add it, you take a look at the Coquitlam Lake. Okay, that's, of the reservoirs, that's the biggest single uh, source of our drinking water. And that provides... Uh, over one-third of the total water supply uh, for the region. Now, in that lake, they uh, have started work to add a new water intake, a water supply tunnel, and water treatment facilities for that lake. Uh, What they are doing, the main strategy is to go down deeper into the lake so that they can take out more water on a daily basis from Coquitlam Lake. That is the biggest single source uh, of a water supply uh, going into the future. Hmm. And it, will, will there, has there been any talk about uh, other reservoirs, other uh, south of the, the Fraser at all in regards to dealing with gro- this growing demand? Well, the, the source of all the water, as you pointed out, are the three lakes, the three reservoirs uh, that we have over on the North Shore. So everything is connected by pipes uh, to, to the North Shore. So, uh, you know, if you're in Delta, your water comes uh, down the mountain, it goes, across, it goes across Richmond, it goes out to Delta, that sort of thing. So it's not so much a matter of having more water facilities south of the Fraser, as such, you just need the infrastructure to get it south of the Fraser. And, uh, you know, that's been care- very carefully done. It's, it's uh, monitored all the time, and it's being expanded. There's more uh, water mains. There's more infrastructure that's being developed. Uh, but, but it's all the underground infrastructure. Mm-hmm. Uh, what impact is climate change having, and what kind of challenges is climate change change? Uh, uh, posing for the for the for our water supply here in in Metro Vancouver. Well, that's that's a very central question, Jazz. Uh, just think back to this last summer. We had a drought, uh, drought conditions for two or three months. 
we had at the beginning of the season we went straight to stage one water restrictions whereas in the past stage one meant you could water your lawn twice a week uh, we went straight to the once per week uh, wa lawn watering is the single source of uh, of the use of the biggest source of the use of uh, drinking uh, water uh, that is that we use and it's the discretionary source so we said okay you can only water your lawn once per week uh, and c c finally around August when the usage had been higher than normal by the population and we still had the dry conditions we went to the stage two which meant you could not water your lawn at all so you ask about climate change there's a very direct result of the changing weather conditions and the, the heat and uh, it affects your supply of water as a result of the steps we took we stayed within very conservatively safe uh, water limits the whole year but it did take some management and some forethought and planning we are speaking to Malcolm Brody, the mayor of Richmond, and also, of course, uh, uh, chair of the Metro Vancouver Water Committee. Uh, you're listening to The Next Million. Now, Malcolm, you talked about uh, conservation. Um, is this just going to be the new normal, then, moving forward, though, every summer? Uh, you know, in, in the past, uh, 20 years ago, we'd be, you know, quite happy watering our lawns, making sure our lawns stayed green that moving forward, these conservation measures are permanent. It's okay to have a brown lawn. Uh, it'll come back in September or October. And this is part of sort of that broader strategy of making sure we preserve our water. And this is going to remain and in, in, is permanent moving forward? I think this is the, the new normal. I think that we will just have to get used to the fact that our lawns are going to go brown in the summer. Uh, as you reflect, there's no problem with that. The, it doesn't kill the grass, it just, it just uh, dries it up. And come September, October, when we get back to the rainier, cooler temperatures, uh, then your lawn turns green again, and on we go. Um, one of the issues is, uh, you know, conservation, some have argued, it doesn't work. Uh, it isn't that effective in the sense that your neighbors can cheat. <laughs> Uh, people are fined sporadically. The fines at times are not significant enough to discourage people from uh, uh, not uh, uh, watering their lawns. Um, can you speak to me of where you think we will be in 2050? I mean, do you envision a, a city, a region that everybody will have a water meter and you will be you will be charged based on uh, what you consume, not just any time, but you consume, let's say, in the summer months or the peak periods? Well, in terms of the, the uh, experience that we have had, I agree that there's been all those things that you have just mentioned, people not following the rules, people deciding that they have their own rules, uh, and, uh, and the like. Uh, I like to think that most people do... Uh, follow the rules, and when you know when Metro Vancouver Water District says you can only water your lawn uh, once a week or not at all, I think most people follow it, though it's not universal. <clears throat> now, in terms of the conservation, this is a particular uh, 
uh, pet peeve of mine as to why all the cities have not uh, put the use of water on water meter. Uh, we did a study. We, we started in my city of Richmond. We started the, the water meter program around 20 years ago. And the experience for the first 15 to 20 years was that we grew in population by 25%, and our water usage was reduced by about 15%. So when you think of, think of that difference and how much less water we have used, uh, that is very, very significant. I think the single most important factor in that uh, is the fact that we have in our city, for all our single-family uh, dwellings, we have water meters. Uh, uh, our The corporate side and the uh, multifamily has kind of lagged behind that, but they're also coming on strong as well, and we have incentives for them to get into the program. So I think that water meters are one of the main tools that we can use going forward, and I have to admit, I don't understand the arguments against it. Uh, so is this just being mayors and councils being laggards and purposely laggards in this case? I don't ascribe any you know negative motivations or anything like that. Uh, everybody's doing the best with the resources that they have. Um, and to put in the meters, uh, you know, we spend many millions of dollars on it. I think that we got a good return for the residents and the businesses in Richmond uh, for that. Uh, there are various arguments that you can make against water metering, saying it's not proven and various other things. I don't buy it for a minute, and I think that it's the duty of every elected person uh, at the local government level right across the region to make sure that their city has uh, uh, full use of water meters. But it's not universally held, that view. Yeah. Uh, I'm curious, going back to your original comments about moving water from the Coquitlam and the Seymour and Capilano and through, you know, pipes coming into your home, how difficult it, is it just in regards to doing that as developments continue, uh, the cost of that? Is, is that a, a pretty constant, uh, is it a, a constant charge or is it, is it one that continues to grow? Because it's one of the many things you obviously have to be paying for as as, uh, as development continues south of the Fraser. Uh, give me a sense of just some of the upkeep and the, and, the, and the challenges you have there in regards to just moving water around the region. It's a matter of maintenance, uh, maintenance of your existing system. It's a matter of growing the system as you need to grow it. Uh, I know that we're not here to talk about the latest housing legislation, but it is one of the challenges that that uh, all the single-family neighborhoods are are supposedly going to be uh, occupied by four and six plexes, and the water system, amongst others, were, were never meant for that kind of, of usage. Um, it's very, very expensive. The water, the water infrastructure is very large, very basic, and very, very expensive, and a lot of the increases your water bills or your uh, the, the bills that come from Metro Vancouver are solely because of the, the need for maintenance and growth of the water system. 
just just touching on your one comment you made, just in regards with the housing legislation, and we won't we'll, we'll talk about it another day. But I just want to clarify a little bit. So the the, the ability to build three to six uh, units on a single family lot. Uh, is there going to be extra pressure now, or is it, I'm just curious as to what this will mean for the water system specifically? Well, I think that all your underground systems are going to have to be much, much larger to to accommodate uh, the growth. Whereas you have a, a row of ten houses, single family houses. Now you're going to have instead of you know say two and a half occupants on on average, each of those ten. You're going to have 40 units, and uh, you know you're going to have that everywhere. So uh, it's a matter of your infrastructure has to meet the demand, and you have certain growth plans, and the infrastructure has to be adequate for that growth. And I have my doubts that uh, you know I have reservations that there's going to be a lot of places that are going to be able to accommodate the kind of growth that is envisioned by uh, the government of the day. Well, we've uh, had a quite a few bit of quite a few conversations around housing. Well, I'm sure we'll have more, uh, but uh, we've run out of time. Malcolm, as always, thank you so much. Anytime, Jazz, a real pleasure. Well, let's revisit uh, one of our stories, or top story from yesterday. That, of course, was uh, Mayor Ken Sim announcing that he wants to abolish Vancouver's elected park board. He said he would move a motion next week to ask the province to amend the Vancouver Charter to bring its uh, parks under the city council's uh, control. Uh, yesterday, we had Brendan Bastiavansky, uh, who was the uh, park board chair, he was the ABC park board chair. He's now an independent, along with two other of his colleagues. Uh, he was in studio, and I asked him a very simple question because obviously last year elected a supermajority for ABC uh, asked a very simple question. Do you have faith in Ken Sims' leadership? Take a listen to what he had to say. Do you have faith in Ken Sim as a leader for the city? Uh, uh, maybe ask me a different question. Uh, look, when I met Ken, uh, I was impressed, right? He's a business guy. I'm a business guy. You know, I, I had faith in him. And he looked me in the eye and, and, and he, he made a promise that I'd be able to finish my term as a commissioner. And he had, he had uh, walked back that whole thing about uh, abolishing the park board. And I, you know what? I believed him. And I, I feel like an idiot for, for believing him. And I'm heartbroken that not only did Ken uh, do a backflip uh, on that, uh, but he's forcing the, the ABC councillors to do it too. And so uh, I, I'm, I'm, I am, like, it's just unconscionable that they, uh, that they would do that. And so I feel really betrayed. And I know a lot of people in the city feel that way as well. So uh, the park board chair, uh, Brendan Bastiamansky, will sit as an in- independent uh, along with two other of his colleagues and now with the Green Party member, uh, that would be a majority. So let's see what happens in park board. But uh, Ken Sim says he's moving forward. Joining me now uh, is Richard Zussman, Global BC's legislative reporter. Hello, Richard. Hey, Jess. Thanks for having me. Uh, now, Mr. Sim is going to go to uh, the legislature, go to Victoria, uh, and ask the province to amend the Vancouver Charter to bring the parks uh, uh, under city council control. What are you hearing over in Victoria in regards to this eventual request that's coming? Yeah, the sense I'm getting is it's going to be pretty smooth passage here. The way that it works is we'll have this council meeting next week. Uh, then at that point, 
if council supports Mayor Sims' motion, as it is expected to do, uh, then the province will formally enter a conversation with the city of Vancouver. The expectation is the city will request for the province to open up the Vancouver Charter. And the Vancouver Charter is unique in the legislature. It's the only municipality bound specifically by one piece of legislation. Uh, it's a piece of legislation that came into place in 1953. Uh, in essence, overseeing the bylaws uh, and other governance structure issues with the city of Vancouver. Uh, so in order to get rid of an elected park board, the Vancouver Charter needs to be reopened. Uh, the province will then, once formally requested, start crafting changes to legislation. We already know they're opening up the Vancouver Charter to look at some of the housing issues because the legislation that was passed um, also requires legislative change for the Vancouver Charter. So they're already looking at it. Legislative lawmakers will make those changes. Then the legislation will be presented uh, before the legislature in the spring sitting. So mm -hmm. that starts mid-February. Uh, we don't know when this legislation will come. I expect it would be at some point in March, maybe a little bit later. Then they'll debate the motions and... Uh, if the legislation passes as expected, mm -hmm. uh, it will lead to the termination of these uh, current Parks Board commissioners, get rid of the Park Board for the future in Vancouver. And, you know, the, the, the province does not want to get involved in some of those uh, inner, the inner workings of all of this. You know, you heard from Brendan Bashkivansky, you know, his frustration with Ken Sims' leadership. The province wants to stay as far away from this as possible, and the easiest route for them is, in essence, to say the elected council in Vancouver wants this. We'll do what they want. They kind of said that was through policing, and that hasn't gone away. <laughs> it's a different well, issue. It's a different issue, right? I get but, that. But it's, it's a good one to bring up, Jess. It's a good one to bring up because the province learned the hard way uh, what it is like to, in essence, meddle in council business. The challenge there is the province determined that it was untenable to continue with the RCMP. The province does not believe it is untenable uh, to get rid of the park board. Uh, there is no thought around the cabinet table or within MLAs that are strong advocates to say, hey, we need to keep the park board. And you have to remember, there are two government MLAs who are former park board commissioners, Spencer Tranger Herbert and Nikki Sharma. And you're not hearing either of them championing the park board. And there's an overwhelming majority of uh, Vancouver MLAs are members of the NDP. Mm -hmm. Again, we're not hearing from them this outrising saying, "My, you know, the people in my community are telling me we must protect the park board. It's just not happening. So I don't anticipate this is one of those issues where we may see the province butt in uh, and circumvent what uh, Vancouver City Council wants. So the speculation, and it's only speculation, oh, you know, why don't they just say, okay, uh, let's just put it to a plebiscite with the Vancouver residents during the next municipal election. You don't see something like that happen. They just go ahead. They've even asked, you approve it, and you move on. Don't worry about it. Let's go back to policing, right? Yeah. There were calls all over the place for a plebiscite, including from MLA, Ginny Sims, who is running for mayor. She lost the mayoral race. She came back into caucus and there was no, no will from the province to say, let's put this back. Plebiscites are expensive. They add extra resources. And ultimately, uh, they may not be the best test of making complicated policy decisions. The reality here is we vote in MLAs, MPs, councillors to make tough decisions. And Ken Sim is the mayor with a majority council is making a decision here. And that is 
the council's ability to do so, and that's how the province sees it. So I don't think there is any hope here, and I could be wrong. I know there are other reporters um, who are out there saying maybe they consider a plebiscite. I don't believe that is something that is on the table right now for the provincial government to say to the people of Vancouver, you vote on whether you want to keep a park board. The firm belief from this government has been people vote councils, let those councils make decisions. We saw that with Surrey, no referendum there, and I expect we'll see the same here around the park board. We are speaking to Richard Zussman, Global BC's legislative reporter. We're talking about, of course, uh, the mayor of Vancouver saying that he will move a motion next week to ask the province to amend the Vancouver Charter to bring its parks under city council control. Uh, lots of emotion there, and uh, there are those who very much like the idea, and others, of course, uh, who are vehemently opposed. Do want to hear from you? Give us a call on the open line, 604-280-9898. Let's go to Steve in Vancouver. Hi, Steve. Hi there. Jazz, love your show. Great. Going to ask my question, then I'll hang up. Listen, I'm a numbers guy. I'm all about streamlining things and cost savings. Mm-hmm. So if there's going to be something here, uh, yeah, all for it. But what is the cost savings? What are the numbers? I'm not seeing anything. The, the only thing I've heard, and those are from Park Board uh, commissioners, is you save the salaries, uh, which I think um, the the chair was making, Scott Jensen was saying about $18,000. So multiply that by seven. Let's give them 20000 So it's $140,000 a year. Uh, roughly. I mean, there may be other savings that we don't know about yet, but you're still going to need the folks taking care of the the beaches. You're still going to need a lot of those employees uh, that do the frontline work. You're still going to need planners. So I don't see significant savings as of yet. Uh, and certainly there's been nothing provided by the city or articulated. Even the mayor was asked that question. And he certainly was implying there would be savings in the future, but nothing yet beyond those seven. And that's what two two commissioners have said that to me. There would be about one hundred and forty thousand in saving, not uh, a lot when you look at the city hall's budget of two point one billion dollars, just in and around there. So, anyway, Richard, you were supposed to say something. Yeah, one thing he's going to say, Jazz and Steve, is that it's going to be about efficiencies, right? So they can try to buy some of the backlog of making these decisions. And if you make a decision more efficiently, you could save money. But we'll have uh, Mayor Sim on Focus BC tomorrow on BC1 starting at 2 o'clock. And that's one of the questions I'll obviously be asking him is to try to explain to Vancouverites where they are specifically going to save money here, because this is the big argument. If he says there's two to three million dollars in savings, you got to show people where are those savings. And partially, it's also about uh, not having to go through two processes: getting approval from Park yep. Board and then having to go to City Hall for approval as well. Now, some have argued the Park Board's uh, entire focus are the parks. And, and Green Vancouver and sometimes councillors who already have enough on their plate will have to now not only worry about development, housing crisis, but now have to deal with parks and there can be extra uh, pressure. Here's an email that I received from one of our listeners. I want to read it to you. Hi, Jazz. Sure, other cities do not have a park board, but Vancouver is like no other Canadian city. There is only one Stanley Park and one string of Pacific beaches. Green amenities are accessible most of the year, unlike most other cities. As noted by others, the parks board also stands sober and stalwart against the vagaries of and whims of changing <laughs> mayors and city councils that have more than enough on their plate to deal with. Seems to me Mayor Sim took umbrage when the Parks Board took, told him to pound sand when he demanded turning the city's golf courses into low-cost housing locales. Obvious to me that Sim has zero tolerance for differing views and proved it with the with the switcheroo on keeping the board. Once the Greens are gone, you'll never get them back. Improved park services, <laughs> don't nix them. That's from Jetty, who's a former Vancouver resident, now in New Westminster. So it's a very passionate conversation, that's for sure. Uh, let's yeah. go. To, sorry, go ahead, Richard. 
No, there's just quickly two things there. These are huge decisions the park board's making, and I think there's an argument that councillors, full-time as they are, should be making these decisions that impact far larger than just parks. So one of the examples is the golf courses. That's about housing. That's about affordability in Vancouver. The other one is about homeless encampments. The park board struggled to make those crucial decisions around what to do about homelessness in the parks. That wasn't ultimately the original goal of park board. And I think there's some validity to an argument that elected councils should be making those types of decisions. You can quote, you know, discuss whether they should be making decisions about building new parks or preserving Stanley Park, but those huge core issues, yeah. I think there's an argument there that council should be the one making those decisions. And ultimately, you can vote them in or out uh, every four years as well. Let's go to, I believe it's Malcolm in Richmond. Hi, Malcolm. Hi, guys. Um, so is our, the mayor having a hissy fit because the council, <laughs> uh, Parks Board, did not put in the people that he wanted? I believe they're freely elected, and each person has a turn at being the chairman, for one, and keep in mind that for the past 12 years, prior to these guys, you had a very left wing, including Mr. Jasper, who was very adamant about trying to turn Langara into housing and uh, condos. So it's not the first time Mm -hmm. that topic has come up. Uh, I have worked with, uh, through my years in soccer and uh, as uh, the major soccer uh, leagues here, when it was the user fees were coming in, Mm -hmm. and the negotiation committee, and all the all of them, all the baseball, the rugby, the soccer, I said this a couple of days ago, it was negotiated that 75% of those funds would stay within the parks board's control to therefore go back to the parks. Well, somewhere along the line, it went into the big uh, Venus flytrap of the world known as general revenue for the city, and you never see the parks being fixed up, unless it's the community groups doing it. Yeah, Malcolm, so I appreciate your call. You made a very good point, and uh, re- and yesterday, I think, uh, one of the commissioners did say that the park board, they felt, was about underfunded by about $20 million every single year. So, there's a lot of uh, information flying ba- back and forth, and we'll continue to follow the story, because it's not going anywhere. And, and Richard, you said it'll be, uh, you'll be talking to Mayor Sim for Focus BC tomorrow? Yep, so BC1, you'll be able to see that at 2 o'clock. It airs through uh, the weekend as well. But yeah, we'll have a a good chat with uh, Mayor Sim about this decision and and some of the repercussions of it. Richard, thank you. My pleasure as always, Josh. Thanks for having me. Here with you, a memoir of love, family, and addiction is the powerful story of a mother's struggle to save her son from addiction and the strength and hope for change that she found in her grief. Uh, The book is written by Kathy Wagner, and Kathy Wagner joins us in studio today. Kathy, thank you for uh, coming by and chatting with us. Hi, thank you so much for having me. So let's talk a little bit about this book. Um, we were talking a little bit during the newscast. Um, talk to me a little bit about uh, how uh, your son Tristan first began experimenting with drugs. Sure. Tristan was 14 when he began experimenting. It didn't seem like a huge stretch to him, um, or even particularly to me, mm-hmm. my oldest daughter at that point was using drugs recreationally. I didn't approve of it, but I knew it was happening. And he was following in those footsteps. I grew up, you know, in um, with friends where we all experimented, maybe not quite at that age, but mm-hmm. I assumed it was a phase and he would grow out of it. Um, it- did you see any change in his behavior as he was using recreationally? When he was 15, he stopped using recreationally. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when he was using drugs when he was 14, he was smoking weed on occasion. 
um, or he would go and take ecstasy on the weekends. Mm -hmm. And a change in behavior was he wouldn't come home those nights. So there was a lot of battling going on. But it wasn't till he was 15 and he had discovered cocaine that the real problem started. Mm -hmm. And then everything changed. His moods changed. He was angry. He was despondent. He was... um, depressed. Um, He dropped out of school. He stopped really engaging in his martial arts, which had been his passion for him. Mm -hmm. So there was a lot of changes uh, when he was 15 and started using cocaine. What were you going through as a mom at that time? Walk me through what goes through your mind, uh, uh, because that's a lot to take as a parent. It's a lot. And I was a single parent and I just really... Honestly, at first I was in denial. Like I said, I thought it was going to be a phase. He would grow out of it. Everything was going to be fine. I had all sorts of um, evidence in front of me that he was struggling beyond just a normal kid dabbling, but Mm -hmm. I was not seeing it until I was forced to really look at the situation. And then I just did everything in my power to try to get him help. So, you know, I would phone the treatment centers. I talked to my doctor. Um, There was nothing available for him because there's... There's no help to be had for a youth with addiction or mental health issues unless they choose to have help, and he didn't. So I took it on myself, and so I ended up investigating, and the only thing he really loved that I thought he might love as much as using drugs was his martial arts. Hmm. So I found um, a place in China um, with a, a kung fu school over there that takes foreign students, and I went over there with him for the for five weeks and to make sure it was a good space. And he stayed there for his entire 16th year when he was 16, studying Kung Fu eight hours a day, five days a week, and uh, not using drugs during that time. So that was, that was my creative solution to a problem. Um, so when, you, you, you left him there. He, mm-hmm. was, he was studying every day. Um, so he was able to... To, to get away from the addiction, and he was doing a lot better. He was able to get away from the drugs. Mm-hmm. And, you know, interestingly, now looking back and having talked to him, you know, throughout years subsequent, his addiction, uh, he had an addictive personality. He was drawn towards things in the extreme, and he had some obsessive-compulsive tendencies. Mm-hmm. Those did not go away. So... And neither did any of his thoughts about drugs. He had told me later he was thinking about drugs all the time, but he didn't have access to them. Mm-hmm. So he did, you know, his brain continued to develop without chemicals. He got some good successes and he had, you know, pride in what he was doing. He formed a community and he had all that to come back to. Mm-hmm. But he didn't address the root of his addiction. So when he came back, he just fell very quickly back into it. So you had the same problem when he, when he came back and that he was still a minor. Yes. And he did not wish to seek help. And you as a mom had to see all this. Yes. So I was watching it replay out again, you know, in various ways. And he ended up going back to China for a little bit. And that was not as effective. We, he ended up falling in love with the kitchens around this time. He started cooking um, and went into culinary school. Mm-hmm. So then that became another another passion for him. But he was using throughout his entire time. Mm-hmm. When did he seek treatment? Not until... He was, he was 20 years old. 
So he had graduated from culinary school, had done extremely well. He um, was working in some of the best fine dining restaurants in Vancouver. Mm -hmm. He was living on his own at that time because I moved him out when he was 19. Mm -hmm. And by the time he was 20, he could not hold it together anymore. He was unable to keep a job. He was not paying his rent. And he was facing uh, homelessness unless he did something. He knew at that point neither I nor her, his dad could take him back. Mm-hmm. So he chose to get help. Uh, and and so was he better after that help? It made all the difference. You know, the last 14 months of his life, he was in recovery. And although it was not a straight line for him, it was a bumpy road. He was in and out at different times. He came back. Like he, he became himself again. I had my son back. Mm-hmm. My daughters had their brother back. He made friends, good friends. Um, he contributed to the community. He helped people. He, you know, he was joyful again, even though he was also still struggling. He was working through his issues. He had a lot of, you know, he was depressed. He had ADHD. He had trauma to work through. Mm-hmm. And he was doing that hard work, but he was um, so connected to other people during that time. So, um, yeah, I will be forever grateful for that time with him. Mm-hmm. Uh, you lost Tristan. Um, uh, when you wrote this book, this memoir, why did you feel you needed to, need, why you needed to write it? Why did you need to write it? I think there's really two reasons. One is um, it's how I made sense of not just his death, but his life and my experiences living through his addiction, recovery, relapse and death. So the writing of it was cathartic for me, but right from the very beginning, the purpose of my writing it was to help other parents to feel not alone. Mm -hmm. When I was raising Tristan in addiction, when he was young particularly, I felt very alone in it. There was nobody I knew who understood. I tried to find support groups and not, I didn't find one that was a good fit at all. Mm -hmm. And when he was in recovery, that also started me on my own path of recovery, looking at my own life and thinking, okay, what, how can I live a life of purpose and meaning regardless of what my kids are doing? Mm-hmm. And I found hope in that. And when Tristan passed, I wasn't ready to give up that hope. I needed, I needed to share it with others. So even though it is um, a tragic outcome for Tristan, I, what I hope and what I've been hearing from some readers is that it actually is ultimately a book of hope for anybody who's struggling with a loved one in active addiction or who has lost somebody. Um, you know, th- it's a message that there is always hope, even if it looks different than what you ever expected it to. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, you lost uh, Tristan to fentanyl. It is an ongoing issue in our society, an ongoing conversation. Um, and we have... Um, uh, quite a passionate conversation around treatment and decriminalization at this point. Um, And I sometimes find, listening to callers, uh, that people fall into that camp of looking at the view through a particular political ideology. We need more treatment centers, more um, enforcement from police, and then maybe I'll look at decriminalization. And there's those on the other side. Your perspective, this is a British Columbian who who also was watching this very closely. What what kind of advice would you want to give to elected officials? Uh, David Evie was sitting exactly where you were just a few days ago. But what, how do you see this conversation in our province? 
I think that there is a complex problem. You know, there is a drug toxicity crisis that needs to be addressed as a drug toxicity crisis. That needs to be um, somehow addressed. And that's where the decriminalization comes in, the harm reduction. There is also a mental health and addiction crisis. And that needs to be addressed, often through treatment, regulated treatment um, of spectrum of options for people there's so many it's such a complex problem we cannot just have one solution it needs to be um, everything from harm reduction to abstinence based uh, treatment to everything in between and it needs to be the person's choice currently there is not a lot of choice to be had um frequently no choice and the choices that are are very expensive so there's very few options for people i don't i don't think it's fair to say we cannot provide treatment to people until we solve the drug toxicity crisis i also don't think it's fair to say we we need to root people through an abstinence-based recovery even though they have no intention of doing that Mm -hmm. we really need to look at this from a human perspective and figure out where people are at and how can we help them where they're at today. The book is called Here With You, A Memoir of Love, Family and Addiction. It's the powerful story of a mother struggling to save her son from addiction and the strength and hope for change that she found in her grief. Uh, the author is Kathy Wagner. She is with us. And, you know, if uh, you're out there looking to buy a book that gives you some optimism, I highly recommend it. It's called Here With You, A Memoir of Love, Family and Addiction. As I said, uh, Kathy Wagner is here with us. Um, Kathy... One of the things, you know, as you now were chatting is, you know, and I, I have a, a 14-year-old home at home as well, and as a parent, you know, the, the fact that if the individual, the child doesn't want help and you want them to find help, and if they don't want that help, there's, it's very difficult mm-hmm. to do anything about it. Um, I find that really hard, not just to comprehend, but I understand why the rules are there, but there has to be something better, does there not? That's exactly what I've been bashing my head about for a decade now. There has to be something better, and yet I don't know, I honestly do not know what the answer is. For sure, when Tristan was 15, if I could have admitted him to a rehab center, I would have, mm-hmm. whether or not he wanted to. Um I know for a fact I would have done that. And whether or not that would have been good for him, bad for him, or in between, we'll never really know. I do know I have talked to some people who anecdotally have had good experiences from forced treatment. I also know for a fact that people have had very bad experiences through forced treatment. And hmm. I, So I think that there's continuing research being done on that. And I do believe in human rights and be in you know people you know you know their own um, ability to choose for themselves. But when a youth is experiencing mental health illnesses and addiction to the point where they are unable to choose something f- based on their own wellness, then a parent should be able to do something. Mm-hmm. I think the main problem it, right now is that there are not enough viable options for help. There is not enough support given to the parents who are struggling. There are not enough options that the youth might um, connect with. For example, um, Tristan ended up in an alternative school for at-risk youth because of his drug use behavior. Mm -hmm. And 
in that environment, they could have partnered with him, him with somebody, say, in recovery or who had experienced drug use and was now beyond or doing something else. He could have seen a role model in recovery at that stage. Maybe that would have resonated with him. Like, there's got to be other options that have not been explored or, you know, if, if we can't send our kids to treatment, mm-hmm. then what are we going to do? We can't just leave them to die on yeah. the streets. Yeah. And we're still seeing that every, every month you get these stats that come out in regards to people we've lost to, to, to um, uh, fentanyl. And, it, and, it, it, and as a developed nation, you would think, uh, whether through enforcement, through help, that we would not be seeing these stats. But we're probably into year eight or nine of this emergency. Yeah. Uh, and it's still not... Um, we're still not solving it, and that, that's that's unfortunate. My final question to you is just: um, this is a book about optimism, and um, and uh, you know, your journey to me is fascinating. What would you want to say to the public about optimism, no matter what kind of life you've had and what you've had to deal with? It? Talk to me a little bit about for you and your journey as a mom, as an individual, and and how you are still an optimist? It, it's interesting. I mean, the book, while hopeful, is not necessarily an easy read. And I think that's, that's what is so important to remember in all of our lives. We don't always have control over all aspects of our lives, and some of the aspects are terribly, terribly difficult. And yet we always have control over certain things within ourselves. We have control over... Um, our thoughts and our feelings to some degree. Some days we only have control over whether we're taking the next breath. When I was in very early grief, it was like, just breathe, just breathe. Mm-hmm. But it's being open to accepting the gifts around us, not taking anything for granted, um, recognizing that we are responsible for our own lives. And unless you have minor children at home, you're not responsible for anybody's life except for yours. So for me... I found hope in remembering to, to, that I was in control of my life and could make my own choices and that my life was just as important as my son's. I try to give myself all of the things that I wish my son had because I'm also somebody's child, mm-hmm. right? And um, I want for me everything I could have wanted for my son now. Yeah. Uh, I just want to say thank you so much for sharing your story. It's never easy. Uh, I know you've done a few interviews, and uh, I just really appreciate you coming in today and um, uh, just sharing uh, uh, your story as a mom, as an individual, with our audience. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.